Yeah, I'm like, what a dumb animal. <laughs> Haven't you seen Finding Nemo and there's no, the pelican that rescues, he rescues the fish from the fish tank in the dentist's office and brings I've him back to the ocean? I've never seen that movie, so. Oh my God. Couldn't tell Have you, you about do it. You, since you're from Florida, do you see a lot of pelicans in real life? I mean, maybe. I assume, I guess. I have never once seen a pelican in real life, unless it was at a zoo. I saw an iguana walking across the street like while I was home and I took a video of it. I'm going to send That's it amazing. to you. That's amazing. Like, There's it, turkeys that walk around here. Really? There, we have chickens yeah, like wild that turkeys. walk around. Um, we have chickens that walk around in Florida. Um, alligators, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's frightening though. I don't um, want to see an alligator in my backyard. <laughs> um, I just sent you the iguana video. It should appear momentarily, but it was. I like okay. stopped in the middle of the road. <laughs> like I was just like, I must capture this. So, um, do you think it was like someone's pet that escaped, or it was just like a Florida iguana? Yeah, no, I think it was just living oh its God. life. Like we're Remember outside when I did the of episode lake. about the lady that ate iguanas and got in trouble for it. Oh yeah, that's. I mean, come on. Don't eat an no, iguana, thanks. people. I don't want to eat any reptiles, to be honest. <laughs> no, seriously. I read something where, on, I think it was on Reddit, where someone was like, I mean, if you want to eat fish without the fishy flavor, you should just eat turtles and gator. And I'm like, you need uh, to stop. Uh, <laughs> like, that is not okay. <laughs> turtles? Oh my God, that's so, that makes me sad because the, the reservoir behind my house, like I've been doing a lot of walking out back there, mm -hmm. and there's this little rock where, where all the turtles will come out and get their sun, and there was like eight turtles out there yesterday. I would never, how, how much effort, like, okay, I'm sorry, but a turtle, I'm a vegetarian, and just throwing that out there, but like that would have to be the best tasting animal because the amount of work that it would take to get the meat out of it, you would have to like crack the shell open and i can't imagine that turtles have that much like meat to go around I so don't would know. it really be worth it to i have no idea eat a turtle i just like i just feel like there's so many as as a carnivore i just feel like there are so many other things you can eat so like why eat a turtle Hello everyone and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc, etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pink collar underscore pod. As per usual, say our spiel. 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 Say our uh, spiel. Hey. Hey, hey, everybody. Um, leave us a review because. Oh, wait. Is that the spiel we're talking about? <laughs> yes. 
So professional. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We had one of our lovely Instagram followers that, that wanted to leave us a review, but they have an Android. So that's really sad. I think Spotify should get their life together or whatever platform you're using so that everywhere can leave us reviews. But for now, it's just Apple Podcasts. So uh, leave us a review. We'll donate a dollar to the National Center for Victims of Crime. Um, and it really makes us happy when when you do that. It makes our, our yeah. gosh dang day. And if you can't leave us a review because, you know, you have an Android, which interesting decision her phone um don't uh, i i don't knock the androids i i'm not knocking the android i'm just saying it's an interesting decision that i personally don't understand um so um but yeah if you can't leave a review um maybe like when we post you know when rachel does our very cool letter board um new episode post just maybe sharing on your story you know that could be cool yeah um, we we we'll will factor that, as well. that into the dollar. Yeah, for sure. Decision. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But um, so this week I you know finally took a little bit of pressure off of Rachel and I came up with a topic um, near and dear to my heart. Um, as we know, there are always like pretty insane quote Florida man cases that come out of my lovely home state of Florida. Um, and so I thought it would be cool to do a Florida woman case. I was going to cover this case eventually. I think that being a podcast that covers, you know, women, this is like one of the most important ones. Um, so I'm doing the case of um, Eileen Warnos. Um, so I'm sorry if you've heard it before, and whoever else probably covered it is doing a lot better job than me, but I, at the very least, I think I could give you, like, mental health provider's perspective on on this case, but yeah, um, I mean, there are, like... I think the thing at the end of the day is, like, there's probably someone else that has done this case, like, any cases that we do, there's probably someone else has done it, but, like we're us and we're giving our perspective so no but okay there are sometimes where i find cases that i'm like i know no one else has covered mm-hmm. this and i do like a great job but this one's like a medium job so <laughs> just okay, bear right. with me guys all right i love the confidence okay so eileen was born eileen carol Pittman, on february 29th 1956 in rochester michigan so I kind of was a little disappointed when I read that because I was like, dang it, not Florida. So she's kind of an imposter, but whatever. Um, so times were different in the 50s. It wasn't so unusual when people got married young and started having children right away. However, her mom, Diane Wernos, was only 14 years old when she married 16-year-old Leo Dale Pittman. They weren't married for long when Diane had Eileen's older brother, Keith, in 1955. And two months before Eileen was born, Diane had already filed for divorce. Um, so it was just pretty quick progression, and I think that we can assume that if she was filing for divorce that she was really unhappy or there were issues in their marriage. Um, at the time she gave birth, Diane or gave birth to Eileen. Diane was a single mother. Leo was incarcerated and would later be convicted of sex crimes against children. He was also diagnosed with schizophrenia. So I 
pulled up some information about schizophrenia from the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, this is, I guess, my spin. I think it's helpful to to know about these disorders and how they might influence um you know, someone's thought patterns. So schizophrenia is usually diagnosed in late teens to early 30s, but there is typically an earlier onset of symptoms in males. So it starts with gradual changes in thinking, mood, and social functioning before a first episode of psychosis appears. As far as risk factors, we know that schizophrenia can sometimes run in families. However, this doesn't mean every single person in that family will develop this disorder. There are certain genes that can increase your risk, but there's no singular gene we can point to that is like the only cause of schizophrenia. So we don't have enough data to use genetic information to predict who will develop schizophrenia. Um, and uh, most scientists believe it's a combination of genetic risk and environment that plays a role in developing this disorder, which I think is true for pretty much every disorder, but there's differing differing levels. Um, but we see that people living in poverty or stressful situations or who have exposure to viruses or nutritional problems can be at a higher risk. Um, so there are antipsychotic medications that can help reduce the physical symptoms that come with schizophrenia, like hallucinations or delusions, which are different than hallucinations in that they are firmly held beliefs, not supported by any objective facts or um, also negative symptoms. Um, so negative doesn't mean like, oh, these symptoms are bad. It just means that there's a lack of something that we typically see. Um, so this would be like social withdrawal, uh, feeling loss of motivation, flat affect. So, you know, they're not being much ups or downs when someone's speaking or reduced speaking. So getting some type of psychosocial treatment like cognitive behavioral therapy can help improve coping skills and also having support from family, um, making sure a person's supports are also educated about this disorder can be incredibly helpful and make treatment more successful. Um, so I just wanted to, to bring that up. You know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about many mental illnesses, especially schizophrenia. Um, and there are ways that someone who has schizophrenia can lead, you know, relatively normal life. Um, you know, it's not just that you're like, oh, that person's crazy. You know, there are plenty of factors that can be preventative if if it's something that does run in someone's family. Um, or there, there are treatments that exist out there that can help with symptoms. Um, so I didn't have that much information either about um, their financial situation. I don't know if they were living in poverty. I can imagine that if you get married at 14 and 16 years old that you're not, you know, super not well off. off. Yeah. Right, exactly. And then also too like back back in the 50s there definitely was less of a um less information out there about mental health and, and proper treatment. I um and say, just I thought you were going to say and you know, back in the 50s there was less money in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Um, but also, like, medical advances have mm -hmm. just, you know, continued to get better. Um, medication options, I'm not sure what was really out there. Um, but so Leo didn't appear to have access to any type of treatment, like any little type of treatment that was probably even available at this time. And um, so there's a misconception that having mental illnesses makes someone 
violent or more likely to hurt others. This alone is not a good predictor, as most people with psychiatric illnesses are not violent. Um, in fact, they are typically at a higher risk of being victims themselves. So I think this is a, a unique kind of situation. Um, doesn't speak for, you know, all people. But uh, there are a lot of factors that can contribute to whether a person with a mental illness will become a perpetrator. But all in all, we know that treatment can reduce the risk that someone will become violent. Um, so don't know too much about his history, you know, what was his childhood like? Um, often people who end up abusing children have been abused themselves. Um, and if there was like substance abuse that could play a role, that puts people at a higher risk for being violent. But either way, his, her father died by suicide in prison on January 30th, 1969. So, um, this was like a little bit later on. She didn't have contact with him at any point, but still can be quite traumatic to, you know, be aware of that or have that happen within your family. Um, in 1960, Diane had left her children with her parents, Lori and Britta Warnos. She was a teen mom who had two kids all on her own. And I imagine her relationship with Leo, like I said, was probably traumatic. There might have been abuse considering his charges. And she was literally a child. She was 14 when she got married. So I know it wasn't illegal back in those days, but um, wouldn't fly today, I would hope. Um, and... I just lost my spot. Also, uh, Laura and Britta, Lori, sorry, Lori and Britta struggled with alcohol use disorder. Um, so when she was just 11 years old, Eileen started engaging in uh, sexual favors for exchange for cigarettes at school. Um, she said that her grandfather had sexually assaulted her and beat her when she was a child. Um, so I think just anecdotally speaking, I can't think of any like research studies off the top of my head, but I think that children who are victims of abuse may start engaging in sexually risky behavior because it allows them to kind of play out this traumatic thing that happened to them in a way that they have control over it. Um, so very sad that at, at this young age who was being exposed to all these things that were just definitely not appropriate for her age level and also was literally incest. So yeah. um, Eileen also engaged in sexual activities with her brother. So, um, you know, not typical behavior doesn't, you know, just... Uh, not not so good. Um, so in 1970, Eileen became pregnant after she was raped by an accomplice of her grandfather. She was 14 at the time, so same age as her mom when she first got pregnant. The pregnancy was a result of, of violence. Eileen gave birth at a home for unwed mothers and placed her son up for adoption. She dropped out of school a few months after, and around the same time, her grandmother died of liver failure. At just 15 years old, Eileen was kicked out of the home by her grandfather, and she started supporting herself as a sex worker. Because, like, let's be honest, what what kind of options are possibly out there? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and she was just living in the woods near her old home. So, Eileen was arrested in Jefferson County, Colorado, for a DUI. You know, she ended up being a little bit all over the place after getting kicked out. 
Um, she also got in trouble for disorderly conduct and also fired a 22 caliber pistol from a moving vehicle. She was charged with failure to appear in court. Um, and then by 1976, this is when she hitchhiked to Florida and met Louis Gratzfell, a 69-year-old yacht club president. So she was around 20 years old at this time. They got married rather quickly after meeting. And during their marriage, Eileen got in some trouble after some bar fights, went to jail for a bit for assault. She also hit Lewis with his own cane. They had been married for a few weeks before he got a restraining order against her, which I don't think that he, you know, I don't know about their relationship. But a 69-year-old marrying a 20-year-old seems kind of sus. Don't love it. Um, Eileen went back to Michigan and was arrested for throwing a cue ball at a bartender's head. In 1976, Keith, her brother, died of cancer and Eileen received $10,000 from his life insurance. Um, So that doesn't seem like a lot of money now, especially when you consider the cost of a funeral. But in today's dollars, it would actually be around $45,000, which is a lot of money. Um, So Eileen was someone who had a very unstable life and probably had not received any education about saving money, you know, spending money. That could have been a point, I think, that she turned things around. But like, how would she have done that? She didn't have the tools, I don't think. Um, So she spent it all. And this makes sense because a lot of people um, who are struggling with finances, they're used to money like disappearing because there's always going to be more bills or fines or like a car breaking down. Like there's always going to be something that needs to be paid for. Um, So Eileen used her money to get some nice things like a new car. But unfortunately, she ended up wrecking the vehicle soon after buying it. So by 1981, Eileen made her way back to Florida. She continued to get in trouble with the law and was arrested for armed robbery, forging checks, stealing cars, resisting arrest. Um, She had also met a woman named Tyria Moore who worked as a hotel maid at a a Daytona. She met her at a Daytona Beach lesbian bar. She separately worked as a hotel maid. I worded that sentence a little weird. Um, But they moved in together, and Eileen supported both of them with her earnings as a sex worker. And in 1988, Eileen accused a bus driver in Dayton Beach of assault, saying he pushed her off the bus after a confrontation. Tyria was listed as a witness in this case. Were they Um, friends, or was that? They were together. Oh, okay. I think they they weren't like engaged or married, but they were In were married. And then, yeah, later on, Eileen would say like, even even after being in jail, that was like the love of her life, and she still loved her. Um, so Eileen clearly had a tough childhood. Things were not getting better as she was getting older. Also, sex workers have a forty-five to seventy-five percent chance of experiencing sexual violence while on the job, which makes sense who are they going to report this to and there's also a huge stigma that sex workers cannot be the victims of sexual assault Mm -hmm. and they are often ineligible for compensation funds for survivors of sexual assault yeah but nobody or people tend not to believe like the idea that well you're selling it so right um, which is absolutely stupid um personal opinion there Right. I mean, there's still consent that goes along with it. And I think that's a really 
big argument for legalizing sex work in order to protect, you know, these men and, and women um, who are at, you know, a high risk of of being on, on the end of violence, which is just awful. But so over the course of 12 months, Eileen would kill seven men who she said were, I don't know what the right term is, like her customers or who were... Um, the Johns. Yes. So her first victim was Char- Richard Charles Mallory, who was 51, in November of 18- 19- 1989. He was a convicted rapist, and Eileen said she killed him in self-defense after being sodomized and brutally beaten. Richard was found a few days after the incident in a wooded area with several gunshot wounds. So next, in May of 19. 19- 90, Andrew David Andrew Spears, age 47, who was a construction worker in Winter Garden, was reported missing. His naked body was found along U.S. Route 19 in Florida Citrus County. He had also been shot several times. A part-time rodeo worker, Charles Edmund Karkskadden, age 40, was killed May 31st, 1990. His body was found in June in Pasco County. He had been shot nine times. Witnesses saw Eileen driving his car. She had also pawned a gun that had belonged to him. Um, in June of 1990, Peter Abram Seams, a 65-year-old retired merchant seaman, left Jupiter, Florida to go to Arkansas. However, his car was found abandoned on the 4th of July, and um, they found... I just lost my spot. Blah, blah, blah. 4th of July in Orange Springs, Florida. Orange Springs County, probably, I meant to say. Eileen and Peter were seen abandoning the car, and Eileen's palm print was found on the door handle. Peter was never seen again, and his body was never found. In July of 1990, Troy Eugene Burris was reported missing. His body was found in August of that year in a wooded area. He had been shot twice. Uh, Charles Richard Dick Humphreys, age 56, a retired U.S. Air Force major, former state child abuse investigator, and former chief of police was found shot to death in September of 1990 um, in Marion County, and his car was found in Suwain County. And finally, Walter Geno, Gino Antonio, age 62, a trucker, security guard, and police reservist was found uh, nearly naked near a logging road in Dixie County. He had been shot multiple times and his car was found in Brevard County. So, by July of... What? Brevard County. Brevard. I don't know what things are. Um, I'm not from Florida. Also, we can pronounce things weird. (laughs) Maybe it's just like common sense. I don't know. It was so funny. I was listening to a podcast one time and they were talking about Naperville, Illinois. And they said Naperville. And I just about died. But um, By July of 1990, Eileen and Tyria had been seen driving stolen cars by many witnesses. Police had also found victims belonging to her, um, their stuff in pawn shops that had matched the fingerprints to those found in the abandoned cars. Since Eileen had a criminal record in Florida, her prints were on file. So that's how they were able to trace all of these killings back to her. I wonder, too, if there were additional victims or... Mm-hmm. Well, okay, here's what I'll say. I might switch back and forth between calling them victims and not because we just don't know, like, what actually went down here. And I don't know if Eileen is telling the truth mm-hmm. and if... Because 
how likely it is that a sex worker might be a victim of a crime, I don't want to assume anything in this case. Well, I mean, even if these people did assault her, they are victims of murder, aren't they? True. Well, if it's self-defense, is it murder? I'm, well, I don't know. They're, they're, they're dead. <laughs> like, <I don't> know. <laughs> but then it would be killing in self-defense. It wouldn't be murder. I'm just getting very technical. I don't... That's. I just wanted to give that disclaimer. Um, all language is made up. It's all a construct. Okay, guys. Um, yeah. Words only have meaning because we give it to them. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway. But I'm just saying, if I refer to them as, as victims... Or, like, I was trying to keep it neutral throughout my script, but I just couldn't find a, a good way. The people of, who were killed. Yes. Because clearly the media, I think, says, like she's bad and Mm -hmm. they were victims and she did kill them and obviously there were like family members that came out that would say like my person would never do this um but we just don't know do you think i guess for me and i i've only like i'm not i'm not a super true crimey person surprise surprise um and so i know like the basics of this case right um and Mm -hmm. so i'm learning a decent bit while you're sharing but for me with the number of victims i guess i'm just curious like what is the likelihood that all of them like assaulted versus right like maybe her own perception of like a forward advance that that too that, that too you know or um yeah like I don't know. Obviously, none of us were there, but, like, these are some of the questions that I have. Um, yeah, and I think we just, we don't know. And I think, like you were saying, clearly she has a very intense background involving trauma, so who's to say? It's just, it's hard, and I think, I I don't really know. But, um, anyway... They found her prints. Um, Eileen would eventually be arrested at the last resort, a biker bar in Volusia County. Do you know that one? Um, Volusia? V-O-L-U-S-I-A. Volusia? Volusia? I don't know. So Tyria was found in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Random. Maybe she's an office fan. Oh, wait, that wasn't around back then. Never mind. Um, Tyria agreed to help the police get a confession from Eileen in exchange for immunity. She called Eileen and begged for help to clear her name under police guidance. So they were just helping her get Eileen to confess, which is kind of a bummer considering that Eileen, like, really loved Tyria and probably trusted her. Um, But in January of 1991, Eileen confessed the murders, but completely or claimed that all the men had tried to rape her and she was acting in self-defense. Eileen went on trial for the murder of Richard Charles Mallory one year after her arrest. During her trial, psychiatrists testified that Eileen was mentally unstable and they diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder, which, so like sociopath and psychopath no longer exist in are diagnosing terms and we would use antisocial personality disorder um so this wasn't enough to prevent eileen from getting sentenced they used tyria's testimony to secure a conviction of murder and eileen was sentenced to death 
In March of 1992, Eileen pled no contest to three of the murders, claiming she wanted to get right with God. And by November of 1992, she had five death sentences. So the defense tried bringing in evidence about her victim, Richard Mallory, showing that he had a history of being sexually aggressive, but the judge would not allow it. Overall, Eileen was very inconsistent with her stories, which I think can make people question whether or not you're trustworthy. But also, I think kind of like disorganized thought is something that's common of people who've experienced trauma. Also, I think it's important to consider her father's diagnosis of schizophrenia and that we see, you know, some symptoms in her that are consistent with that diagnosis. But, like, Um, not just that. Like, okay, Rachel, can you tell me what you did on January 16th? (laughs) Like, even if it's, like, even if it's, like, a big major event, like, I don't think you always remember... Like, every detail, and then if there's multiple, like, things, right. it's, like, But in this case, confused. it was that she was going back and forth about whether or not she had been raped or if oh. she was just robbing people. Pardon so that's me, where there was right. inconsistencies. But no, you're absolutely right. It's just in this case that wasn't... Yeah. I think that's something that's used a lot mm-hmm. against women who have experienced like rape or very traumatic events is that their stories can seem inconsistent because just the way that your brain processes or is like storing the memories of those events you know it blocks certain things out it does things in weird order like you remember certain things related to certain senses but not others so you're absolutely right in that but in this case it's that she was going back and forth um So her original story was that she was defending herself from being raped, but then she changed her story, saying her motive was robbery. But when she was interviewing with a filmmaker, she said that she made up the lie because she didn't want to be on death row anymore and she just wanted to die, saying, like, she was raped, but then she said it was just robbery because she just wanted, like, to die. She just wanted it to be done, which... Um, When Eileen was assessed using the psychopathy checklist, which has like 20 items or statements that you rate on a scale of zero to two, uh, meaning the highest score is 40, you can look up the psychopathy checklist online um, if you're interested in seeing more. But generally scores of about 25 to 30 are consistent with a diagnosis of psychopathy or like I was saying that we call it antisocial personality disorder. So she scored a 32 out of 40 on this test which like I don't know I just don't think that there's any way that she could have been fit to like stand trial or I think that she I don't know who these psychiatrists were I don't know I don't know I also I like when we look at cases where people get kind of get that like not fit to stand trial or insanity or whatever defense I I think that there's so like with most things, I think there's so much bias in it because 90% of the time I feel like it's somebody who's a sympathetic, like, victim or somebody who's a sympathetic, like, defendant. And when mm-hmm. it's women, I feel like it's like, well, does she look like somebody who could have been, like, a victim or, like, gotten beaten? I mean, she definitely rough around the edges. Exactly. And so I think that is, like, a big factor in why people they're like well look at her like she must be a cold-blooded um which is unfair it's not nice plus i'm this this is something i was wondering throughout this case is how much do they take a history of trauma 
into their like case like uh the the person that you covered that was just recently executed yeah the history of trauma in her case was insane yeah and just hearing eileen's story i think that if i were in that situation like you just can't imagine a person having zero access to treatment and like being able to become a regular functioning member of society and i think i think there's a big difference between somebody who wakes up on a Tuesday after, like, always having this, like, desire to burn things down and, like, kill people and then decides to, like, murder eight people um, because he's having a bad day, quote unquote. Um, (laughs) And I think there is, I think there's a big difference between that and then somebody who has only, or who's had a very significant history of a, like, Abuse or, you know, like violence being happening to them, like, especially when you're young and that, you know, happens during those critical periods in your life, those Mm -hmm. developmental periods, wouldn't that shape your functioning and your understanding of how the world works? Well, right. Even if this person, like, presents as, quote unquote, normal functioning or has an understanding between right and wrong, whatever else they use to make these decisions, I just don't think that... Like, you can't ignore that insane history of trauma and be like, well, she's sane. Yeah. I'm Too not, bad. I'm not saying it's a disability, but you right. do have to consider, like, that the brain in this case is not functioning, like, normally, probably. Right. And that doesn't mean that the brain, that that person's brain will always function that way, because I right. think that there is legitimate interventions. There is treatment. Yeah, right. that can actually help that person. And so it's it's disappointing that it feels like they're like, well, they created, the, they committed this, like, you know, heinous act. Let's throw away the key or execute them or whatever. Um, it's dumb. Right. <laughs> My professional opinion. <sighs> anyway, so while she was awaiting her execution, Eileen wanted to fire her lawyers and stop all pending appeals. Her attorneys tried to argue that she was not mentally competent. Um, but she said she was confident in her decision, and the court-appointing psychiatrist agreed. Then, in 2002, Eileen accused the prison staff of putting saliva, urine, and dirt in her food. And she said that she heard them talking, saying they wanted to make her so miserable that she would just kill herself before the execution. She said she would also get catcalled, and that staff said they wished to rape her before the execution. She also complained about frequent strip searches, people kicking her door, mildew on her mattress, low water pressure, etc., etc. And when certain staff work were working, she would boycott showers and would refuse to go eat. Um, her attorney stated she wanted to be just be treated humanely before her death. Um, so again, in this case, it's hard to say because honestly, I'm not sure I would be super surprised if stuff like this was happening within prison. Unfortunately, I don't think prison guards are always perfect people. And especially in cases like this, um, you know, I can't imagine that (laughs) people are treating, um, people accused of like these horrific crimes very well, but also part of it too, I think could be pointing to symptoms of schizophrenia so like this extreme paranoia um like imagining things that aren't actually there but it's just so hard in this case like we can't say whether or not and like the fact that i wouldn't be surprised if all this was happening too Mm -hmm. um i'm saying it could go either way 
but it could it could be symptoms of schizophrenia presenting themselves untreated mm-hmm. schizophrenia so we don't we don't know um but a few weeks before the execution Eileen was giving interviews about being uh, ready to see what was beyond um she said she was you know ready to meet God and Jesus she said her mind was being tortured and her head was crushed by sonic pressure which again could be you know maybe like hallucinations or delusions we don't yeah. know what who what 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 were these interviews like who like was it media or something yes media interviews what do you what do you think of that like people i i find it weird and kind of inappropriate like i don't know i just feel like because in my opinion the intention is to sensationalize right like this murder like it seems it seems insane to me that that's allowed but I I don't know. Beside the point. (laughs) So there was some stuff that she was saying that was just a little unusual. Um, She also said when she would complain about like the food tampering and other abuses that they would just get worse because they were trying to make her seem like she was crazy. But again, I wouldn't be shocked to hear if this was happening. Um, So she said in an interview, you sabotaged my bleep society and the cops and the system. A raped woman got executed and was used for books and movies and bleep. Her final on-camera words were, thanks a lot, society, for railroading my bleep. Which is fair. I think society didn't do a great job of, like, stepping in to take care of her. Like, where were child protective services? Like... Mm -hmm. Sounds like she should have been taken out of this abusive environment very early on. Um, but so she was executed on October 9th, 2002. She declined to have a last meal, which she could have had anything under $20, and opted to have a cup of coffee instead. Right before her death, she said, Yes, I would just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie, big mothership and all, I'll be back, I'll be back. Which again, that statement alone makes me question whether or not she was competent to be executed, which is kind of a ridiculous thing that like you have to be competent to be executed. Like you have to be in your right mind to be killed. (laughs) Yeah. Dumb. <laughs> I was like, after you read that statement, I was like, is this all over my, like, is this some reference to something that I, like, some I movie I haven't seen? But I'm going to guess that it was just incoherence. Um, I, but then too, like, if I were about to be killed, I can't promise if I was about to be killed and I knew I was about to be killed, I would also probably be losing my mind because, like, I would just be freaked out. Like, that's... And considering, like, she was getting, possibly having this horrible treatment in in prison, you know, when you're being mentally tortured for a while, if that was the case, or just being in prison in general, honestly, like, even if you have the most perfect treatment ever with, like, prison staff or, like, food, like, it's still torture in my mind. Um, so, uh, my 
statement alone makes me question she was cremated and her ashes were spread under a tree in michigan by a childhood friend so a director named nick broomfield who made two movies on her life two documentaries um interviewed her quite frequently would uh later discuss eileen's motives saying i think this anger developed inside of her and she was working as a prostitute i think she had a lot of awful encounters on the roads And I just think this anger spilled out from inside her and finally exploded into incredible violence. That was her way of surviving. I think Eileen really believed that she had killed in self-defense. I think someone who's deeply psychotic can't really tell the difference between something that is life-threatening and something that is a minor disagreement that you could say something that she didn't agree with. She would get into a screaming black temper about it, and I think that's what caused these things to happen. And at the same time, when she wasn't in those extreme moods, there was an incredibly or an incredible humanity to her. So, I think that's just a nice way of of summing up. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, people who have experienced a lot of trauma, if you're experiencing symptoms of uh, uh, PTSD you can misjudge situations and view them as life-threatening when they may not actually be life-threatening. Um, just so much to unpack in this case that I don't think that she was just this terrible, evil person. And mm-hmm. I, I feel for the victims and their families, you know, if I had a family member who was killed by someone who had, like, a terrible childhood or whatever, I don't think that I would just be like, well, it's fine, you know, you had a bad childhood. Um it would still be such a devastating loss and um it's just unfortunate i think this is one of those cases where i'm like early intervention like come on guys i think that could have made a huge difference and i think that if there had been early intervention then i don't think that that these crimes would have happened i don't think it would have gotten to that Okay, so I am doing a case that's actually pretty short, but um, yeah, uh, it's the, her name is Sarah Boone. Um, and so in February 2020, 42-year-old Sarah Boone and her boyfriend Jorge Torres Jr. were having a nice Saturday night in like most couples, or sorry, Sunday night. That's important. Not really, but yeah. Sunday night in, like most couples often enjoy. They were enjoying some Chardonnay, painting together, and working on a puzzle. Which, doesn't that sound like a nice night in? Oh, my dream. I love puzzles. Yeah. Like, Drell and I, we like to just hang out, like, play some Rummy Cube, watch some TV. It's great. Um, But their night kind of took an interesting turn. And so starting with Sarah's version of events, the two decided to play what was supposed to be a fun, albeit drunken, game of hide and seek. And so before before I go on, I just want to add that if Sarah's hide and seek claim is correct, then the two of them did not understand how to play hide and seek. Um, I say this because while they were playing hide and seek, they both decided that Jorge's hiding spot should be in a suitcase, not behind like a big suitcase, not behind like a ton of luggage, but inside of one. And so that's where, again, I'm like, well, you already know where he's hidden, but whatever. So, yeah. So Sarah proceeded to help Jorge, Jorge. Jesus. Um, Sarah proceeded to help Jorge um, 
get into said suitcase, which again defeats the point of hide and seek. But I guess if they were drunk, maybe that makes sense. I don't know. And so the suitcase also had items meant for donation inside. And so I'm not sure if the suitcase was just like a massive one. Like I'm imagining, like, do you remember on Gilmore Girls, the suitcase that like Lane Kim's parents oh like sent? That was like comically large though. That was like taller than she was. But no, like my little sister, I borrowed her suitcase for a while because she did study abroad. So she had like actually massive suitcases and like I could definitely fit inside i'm just I'm trying like five, to imagine six, and like i could fit i'm trying to imagine like a 41 year old man fitting comfortably within a suitcase that also i mean has, it probably wasn't comfortably sure but, but also has other items in it being able to zip it because let me tell you every time i go on a trip anywhere i can never get my suitcases zipped Um, So if there was an actual human being inside. Yeah. And so, I don't know. It's also possible that Jorge just, like, had a smaller stature. So that is also um, reasonable. Um, And so after Jorge, you know, presumably contorted his body um, into the suitcase, Sarah zipped him in. She didn't zip it all the way. So she... um, So she had Jorge or I guess Jorge just kind of left two of his fingers sticking out of the suitcase. Um, Sarah then said, you know, after Jorge was in the suitcase, she, you know, naturally decided to go to bed, um, thinking that he'd be able to get himself out of the suitcase since he had two fingers left out of it. Um, but again, if they were playing hide and seek and she had already found him. So like, let him out. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm just like, I don't know. Um, and so the next morning she woke up and found Jorge's lifeless body still in the suitcase. So again, according to her, she called 911 and told him that her boyfriend quote, got trapped in a suitcase during a game of hide and seek. Um, and so this kind of is getting more into some of like what may or may not be facts, so less of her version, I think. Um, And so when police got there, Jorge was near the front door with a a busted lip, and he had bruising around his eye. And so I think this was, he was in the suitcase, and he had a busted lip and bruising around his eye. He also had long scratches on his upper back and neck, presumably from being scratched by someone's fingernails. Um, Jorge also had bruises on his shoulder, skull, and forehead, all of which were consistent with blunt force trauma. Not surprising, investigators are like, head and seek, eh, this is fishy, and conducted, you know, a naturally proper investigation. Um, Plus, I feel like just being in a suitcase alone wouldn't kill you. Yeah. I feel like there's enough... Like, there, it's not, like, vacuum sealed. Like, you're still able to breathe. Yeah, exactly. So, and being so, in a suitcase for that many hours, I don't think. Unless you were left in the suitcase for, like, a week. Yes. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Um, and so, um, so, Sarah, for whatever reason, Sarah signed a waiver and gave verbal and written consent, um, giving police permission to search her iPhone. Um, which personally, I have no intention of doing any crime. Like you'd be hard pressed for me to give anyone. Like, I don't like you could be the FBI. Like I'm not giving you permission to go through my phone. (laughs) I just, I just think it's on principle alone. Like, no. Um, yeah, I definitely would be like, why do you screenshot so many memes? Like, are you 45? Seriously? Yeah. Seriously. Like, why do you have so many pictures of your dog? Like 12 of these are the same picture 
You never like, know. You have a lot of like questionable selfies on here where you look very ugly. Like, what's the point in keeping those? Like, who like, needs why to... do you listen to so many true crime podcasts? Are you planning to commit a murder? <laughs> exactly. Um, and so when they searched her phone, they found a pretty, pretty damning evidence against Sarah's claim of what happened the previous night. Surprise, surprise. Um, and so on the video, um, it showed Jorge crying out for help. And so at one point in the video, he said, I can't effing breathe. Seriously. Sarah responded that being in the suitcase was Jorge's punishment for cheating. She said, that's on you. Oh, that's what I feel like when you cheat on me. Um, and so in the video, investigators could see Jorge pushing and struggling while he was zipped in the suitcase, um, trying to get out or encourage Sarah to, you know, let him out like I feel like any person would actually do. Um, and so although Sarah claimed that she found him lifeless in the morning, she didn't call the police until the afternoon. Her story slightly changed ever so slightly, this time claiming that when she woke up that morning, she assumed Jorge was just up somewhere and on his computer in another room, and that's why she hadn't seen him that morning. Um, Eventually, when she couldn't find him, that's when she realized he was still in the suitcase. Of course, um, this would be when Sarah called the police, right? Wrong. Mm -hmm. She called her (laughs) ex-boyfriend. She called her ex-boyfriend who came over first and he got there and he was like, uh, girl, you got to call 911. Like what? (laughs) And so she called 911. And so, um, you know, investigators got there. That's when they saw like the scene and it was, you know, did not seem like a simple game of, um, hide and seek. Um, and again, that's not how you play hide and seek. Um, and when investigators tried to show Sarah the video, she pushed it away and she said she didn't want to watch it. Um, she actually, I think, described it as, like, she was like, it's too difficult to watch or something like that. Um, she continued to deny leaving Jorge in the suitcase overnight on purpose. So so according to her, it wasn't intentional. Um, she said she didn't recall even recording the videos and didn't believe Jorge, Jorge was actually in distress or in distress, um, comparing him to the boy who cried wolf, um, according to, uh, police records. And so Sarah was asked why she did not let Jorge out when he asked to be let out, um, according to the Orange County Sheriff Detective Chelsea Copesell. And so Sarah replied, well, number one, I had no idea it was going to end like that. And number two, I'll give you five minutes or so in there. Um, And so like the wording on like that number two part is weird to me, but I guess like she's saying she was gonna give him five minutes in there but like why did he go to bed i don't know um and so per the affidavit um sarah demonstrated a depraved mind without regard for jorge's life um she was arrested the following day and charged with second degree murder and so she's currently being held without bond in the orange county jail um and so if she is convicted she could be sentenced to life in prison um so that is like my very simple very short case (laughs) and so the argument um and i like literally this case was like five minutes to tell wow (laughs) it's less than 10 minutes um and so my argument so the argument i got into with um jarell over this was 
he's like, no, this is premeditated. She like dragged him into that suitcase and like put him in there. But I'm like, like it, that means he was dead weight. <laughs> like how I just don't understand. Um, like, and then in the video, he was like calling out to like let him out. But like Jarrell's just like, no, she had to have drugged him, dragged him in there, contorted his body, put him in the suitcase. And I just don't think that that's like this would be helpful to know the sizes of the two of them, because like we were saying, we don't know if um, Jorge was of smaller stature in order to fit. So if, you know, if he was like like five foot five, two um, and she was also on the smaller end or maybe taller then you know i would in if he was like six two you know i'd be like okay i have a hard time imagining that this woman would be strong enough to do that also the injuries that he sustained they are probably able to do some type of like analysis to see like did they clip her fingernails did they see i guess Mm -hmm. She would probably have, like, skin cells and stuff anyway yeah. under her fingernails just because of the fact that they, like, live together. And it would be hard to say, like, whether or not that came from, like, oh, was she just scratching his back earlier or, like, something. Like, there's yeah. enough deniability there. Um, but I think they could tell whether or not his injuries were probably sustained while being in the suitcase and maybe trying to get himself out versus did they happen before. Um so yeah, I don't I don't my, feel like we have enough information to say. So I have seen pictures of her. So she's not like a very like big like I don't think she seems to be super strong. Like she doesn't seem like, you know, probably the average size, maybe a little bit smaller. I only ever saw a picture of Jorge's face, and so I have no idea what his body looked like, but presumably a grown man is probably over 100 pounds, at least 100 pounds. And so I'm just thinking of 100 pounds of dead weight to, like, contort and, like, put, like, lift, roll into a suitcase. I, like, I just don't see. I I consider myself a pretty strong girl, um, pretty strong woman. Um, (laughs) I'm a big girl. (laughs) I'm a big girl. Um, No, I... And I just don't, I just personally don't get it. And so, so while that's Jarrell's like stance, he's like, nope, premeditated. She had planned this for weeks and like she drugged him. I don't. I think. I don't know. I think he willingly got into the suitcase. I think he was just like, yeah, I'm going to get into the suitcase. And then at that point, that's when she was like, oh, wait, I am mad at him for cheating on me. Like I right. I also want to know how much they both had to drink. Mm-hmm. Like, were they just tipsy? Were they both like blackout drunk? I think that plays a role. And I also I was thinking, you know, you said that she was charged with second degree murder. I wonder if manslaughter would be a more appropriate. Yeah, charge. that's that's my thought because. I do think it matters if he was forced into the suitcase or put into the suitcase against his will. But if he got into the suitcase willingly and allowed her to zip it, I think it becomes manslaughter no matter what, (laughs) personally. Um, Unless she, like, took, like, a baseball bat and was, like, while he was in the suitcase, like, beating the suitcase, which I don't necessarily, I don't think his, I don't think his injuries are consistent with that, it doesn't seem, as far as I, I think I read that he, he died of, like, you know, suffocation, basically. Um, 
and so I don't even though like there were injuries like I don't think those were related to his cause of death and so I don't know it's just like I think I I don't probably think she thought it was going to kill him yeah I don't think she probably thought it was a good like I don't think she probably thought it was like comfortable or like it was some type of punishment but like even when we just when we were talking at the beginning I said I didn't think that that would kill somebody yeah in a suitcase for that long yeah whereas so Jarrell's stance is like nope she had a knife and she told him <laughs> she get told him suitcase. to get into the suitcase and i you know i'm not gonna victim i tr- like i'm not victim blaming but i am trying to imagine a scenario in which somebody is just holding a knife and you tell me to get into a suitcase and i'm gonna do it like I, because if for, you ha- if your plans were to kill them, wouldn't you then just use the knife? Exactly. And so for me, I guess I'm thinking like, I'm putting myself in the position of somebody being demanded to get into a suitcase. I'm like, well, you have a weapon, so you're either gonna kill me with that. What like what good is gonna come from me getting into the suitcase? It's not like you're just gonna leave me in the suitcase. Like it's like you're gonna harm me. <laughs> So I'm not getting into the suitcase. And I like, but Jarrell's like, nope, like, you know, like she, she had, she must've had a weapon. And I'm like, if she had a gun, they probably would have found it. Um, I mean, it's possible that they couldn't, I mean, you know, maybe she like left and whatever. So I will say one thing that I read only in one article, but there was nothing else that said anything about it. And I think it could have just been a little like BS. Like sometimes people kind of try to insert themselves into investigations and um, provide a perspective that didn't really happen. Um, A neighbor said that they heard something loud and they specifically described it as something being thrown down the stairs. And I don't know how you would know. Like, I feel like if you heard a loud noise, how would you know that it was something being thrown down the stairs? in someone else's home if it was like thunk 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 i mean i i don't know like i still i think the suitcase was thrown down the stairs i think that you would see injuries consistent with that yeah i think that it would be pretty hard i think you would have a pretty strong argument of saying like these bones were all broken like Mm -hmm. this was definitely plus i think there would probably be like if it was thrown down the stairs like there might be more like blood like yeah. their head probably would have been hit at some point there would have been i yeah. just think that it would have been very obvious that a person in a suitcase was thrown down the stairs yeah and so me trying to like rationalize rationalize the injuries i'm like well maybe he was in the suitcase and she like punched like the suitcase you know what i mean like that's why he right but then wouldn't you see well he had on bruising. her hands I mean, he could have. What about her hands? Well, okay, she could have like stepped. Like he had bruising on his like where his eye would be, and then like his like neck and shoulder. Um, And so I'm thinking like, what are probably the easiest? Like if you're hitting a suitcase, like what are what parts of the body would be protruding the most or like most easy to hit? And so I'm like, maybe she like she did something to hit him while he was in the suitcase. Is my thought process. But again, they're also Mm -hmm. basing like her. Like, she, clearly she did something wrong. Like, you should not leave yes. your oh, boyfriend. I, I don't think you shouldn't that. leave any person in a suitcase. But they're basing, like, her, the charge for second-degree murder off of, like, two, like, 20-second, like, video clips of her being, like, a dick. Um, 
sorry if dick is not a word we're allowed to say her being a jerk I know. <laughs> it's up to you um, you added this <laughs> and so yeah i just so we so um Drell and i just ended up in a big argument because he thought like me providing these alternative explanations was like me co-signing her behavior <laughs> and he's like no he's like now i don't know what you're about to do to me <laughs> like, it's like, I'm going to wake up one day in a suitcase. <laughs> it's going to be all over from there. Like, no, I don't think that down. she yeah. was probably intending to kill him. But I think that her behavior was reckless enough that yeah. it's like it wasn't just an accident. I think, you know, if she had accidentally bumped into him at the top of the stairs and he fell down and like <laughs> smashed his head, then that would be like an accident, you know, I with also... no malice. Like if you, I don't know, are like say you're like running on a rug on a hardwood floor and you trip and you knock the person you know like that's mm-hmm. not murder but this i think can fall into the manslaughter category yeah and then the other thing is the part about his fingers being left out of the suitcase because you can see it in the video i mean i couldn't find the video but according to reports like you could see it in the video that he had fingers left out of the suitcase and so i like i i feel like that also shows like non-murderous intention at the time of stuffing her grown right. man boyfriend into a suitcase if she had like locked it shut like some suitcases have locks yeah so and that then, you like, can get it unzipped yeah and then like wheeled him to like the trunk of her car and then pushed it in a lake <laughs> okay that's taking it a little far but even if she had zipped it up all the way because there'd be no and that's where i'm like curious how much they both had to drink mm-hmm. Because was he so intoxicated that he couldn't figure out? Yeah. Not saying that it's his fault in any way, but I feel like if someone had put me in a suitcase and I'd put had two fingers, and it's you know it could have been like jammed. It could yeah. have been like something could have been caught. It could have been like mm-hmm. he just wasn't able to get yeah. himself out. But I think too you might see that visible on his fingers mm-hmm. as well if he was like trying to get it you'd probably be pretty frantic at a certain point. There'd probably yeah. be, like, cuts on your fingers or, or whatever. Yeah. But was he so intoxicated that he might have, like, blacked out and, like, just passed out and then suffocated? Like, I, I don't I don't know. Yeah, and my other thing about this is, goes, like, back to kind of, like, what you're saying about intoxication levels. And I'm like, how... I always struggle with, like, how responsible is somebody for, like, a crime when they are, like, intoxicated? Like, how, not necessarily how responsible, like, obviously, you, if you did something wrong, you did something wrong, but, like, the, I don't know, so you could, if, going back to, like, sexual assault, trigger warning, I guess, like, a drunk girl could be like, yeah, I want to have sex with you right now. But she's so drunk that she doesn't know what she's saying. And that's considered assault. And if both parties are intoxicated to the point where they both are not capable of making decisions, though. What? Yeah. And so that's... I can see that. Yeah. And so that's kind of... Like, I've, I've always... Like, this has always been something that, like, has bothered... Like, I remember getting to a big argument in my women's studies class in college with my professor. Um, but I'm like, because she's like, that guy was drunk and she was drunk and he's going to jail for like having sex with her. I'm like, well, hold on. <laughs> two people were drunk. Right. Let's talk about it. Um, but like in this case, we're talking about two drunk people. 
and so I'm just like I I don't know like I'm not saying she shouldn't be punished but murder seems right murder I seems just think intense. but I guess if there's a the lot of prosecutors said manslaughter I would be like yep that makes sense like no no debate there but yeah. with some being second some sort of like who negligible in their right minds, like yeah I'm going to kill someone by putting them in a suitcase and leaving it over. I would understand putting them in a suitcase, pushing them down the stairs, putting them in a suitcase and throwing them in a lake. Sure, then absolutely, that's like a, a, a total murder. <laughs> but just putting someone in a suitcase and leaving them in a suitcase, I wouldn't think that someone would die from that. And especially, too, like you were saying, like, she left his fingers out. Like, it wasn't like she was locking the suitcase shut. It's just a weird, yeah. weird case. What was the headline for this case? Just curious. Was it like um, Florida woman murders boyfriend by putting him in suitcase? Florida woman accused of zipping boyfriend in suitcase for hours until he died. <laughs> woman arrested Dang. after boyfriend dies in zip suitcase. Um, so yeah, like that pretty much was it. It also reminded me of, and this could have been a Florida case, um, where they were a YouTube like couple or something. I don't know if you saw it, but like, oh, where didn't they shoot? Yeah, he was like, shoot, like I'm gonna hold this really thick Bible and like God's gonna stop it. And so she shot him while he was holding the Bible like at his chest. Wait, and he like totally cover that case. Yeah, and he like died. But I'm like. And I guess she was charged with, like, murder or something, but I'm like, hold on. <laughs> he asked for this. I think, again, manslaughter. <laughs> yeah. But they both contributed, and it was both equally irresponsible. And especially, too, I think you, as the person who is shooting the gun, are probably at more fault. Even if the other person's like, yeah, totally do it. Like, I mm-hmm. think you, as the person holding a gun, you are more responsible. Yeah. But, oh, I, want, I wanted to add that to the list of, like that's kind of along the lines of like uh what was i thinking false accusations i think oh, we already yeah. did a case like that but i don't know if that 100 percent fits that yeah accidental deaths maybe <laughs> um unintentional crimes i guess um yes i i mean i also so kind of like how we're saying like you know i feel like cases where trauma like where the perpetrator um has like such extensive amounts of trauma um like possibly should be treated a little bit differently i do sometimes feel like crimes of stupidity should be treated (laughs) differently than like because i'm like you're just like you're you it was dumb (laughs) you know what i mean like i don't i don't necessarily think that that means you're gonna re-offend i think like but you could put other people at risk with your stupidity (laughs) yeah and so i'm like i think you need like extra school or something like a foster parent or something <laughs> like i don't know as um, an adult <laughs> yeah like somebody to help guide your decision making but i don't know like i it's these hard are just my it's thoughts. hard in those cases <laughs> where there's no malice but it's like just such blatant ignorance where it's like what do you do with that who knows yeah. well yeah because like is putting someone in jail like first of all i don't think putting anyone in jail is successfully rehabilitating Mm -hmm. people you know like maybe by some off chance they'll end up but i think if you took a regular person who hadn't committed a crime at all and put them in prison for like a year that they would be worse off than when they went in so i know i would people who have you know a history or like who clearly weren't doing great before and you take them and put them in and then it's like oh well it's even harder to get a job now and Mm -hmm you're not used to being in the real world and like depending on how long they were in prison like things have changed like 
I, would I just think you're setting people up for failure. If I had to go to prison. But yeah, with stupid people, like, I feel bad seeing stupid people. But, but like, like <laughs> poor judge, like crimes of like extremely poor, poor judgment. Yes. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast. <laughs>